Hello, everyone. I'm Abigail Majola. And I'm Toby Moffat. Welcome to this edition of November 4th on the Shindig platform. Before we begin, I would like to remind everyone in the audience um, that we will conclude our program with um, a question and answer portion. So if you want to ask a question, please raise your hand or click the question mark to type your question. Yes, yeah, so uh, those of you who have been watching our series regularly know that we've, we've attempted to uh, uh, prompt a dialogue among uh, American citizens and particularly people who participate in this program and all those who participate via uh, uh, the live stream on uh, what the discussion should be on November 4th, hopefully with a new administration on the way in and a new government and uh, the, the damage that's been done, uh, so much damage over the past four years, how to not just recover from that, but how do we actually reimagine? And so today, the topic is prisons, and particularly prisons in light of uh, the COVID um, pandemic that we've faced. There's been, there's been a movement for reforming prisons for a long time, for many decades, uh, one of the questions we're going to have for our uh, several interesting guests today is what what has COVID done uh, impact wise to that reform movement in all of its uh, in all of its aspects, Abby? So our first guest is the Arthur Lehman Professor of Law at Yale Law School and the founding director of the Arthur Lehman Center for Public Interest Law. Um, Judith Resnick. So please join me in welcoming Judith to the stage. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi, and glad to be there. Here, there, whichever, wherever we imagine <laughs> all of ourselves as being as if we were all together. Yes, uh, Professor, thanks so much. You're, you're very well known nationally and I suppose globally, uh, and certainly locally in the, in the greater New Haven area, which is an area that we've shared common. Um, for your work in, in prison reform and particularly in, lit in litigation. Uh, in terms of the broad question that I raised at the beginning, mm -hmm. if you look at this COVID, COVID period of let's say uh, six, seven months, uh, totally in, un, uh, not anticipated, not, not, we're not capable of anticipating it, but we find ourselves with it. And here you are, uh, a renowned uh, litigator uh, um, bringing cases, uh, moving toward, you know, more uh, equity, equality, um, more humanitarian treatment of inmates. How has COVID impacted on that? You've been doing this for a, a long time before COVID came around. How has how it impacted? Um, so uh, COVID underscores how terrifying confinement is. As I mentioned to you both before uh, we began, uh, Rachel Aviv in The New Yorker had a piece about the Arkansas prisons because there's litigation in Arkansas challenging the conditions of confinement and challenging the fact of confinement because of COVID. And what one sees clearly in her story as in so much of the litigation as in your other guests' work as well is that prisons are awful before COVID and COVID simply turns it into bright neon, whatever your visual metaphor is, for underscoring that it's bad for people's health and well-being. And so what you saw, um, the people who are incarcerated have not been sentenced to risk of illness or death. 
But the fact of COVID takes congregant housing and puts everybody, whether it's a nursing home or a university dorm or a prison or a hospital, if you're close, too close to other people, we know that is the source of disease spread and or the Rose Garden. And so as we see that, what we understand is you got to keep people in lower numbers. And this goes back, this is why it's really important to think about the role that law could play and law has played in the thing we call prison. There's absolutely nothing natural about taking a human being and changing all their capacity to move freely in the world. It's a whole bunch of decisions. And in 1979, there was a lawsuit challenging the double selling in a pretrial in a jail, in, in a federal jail in New York. And the US Supreme Court, an opinion written by then Justice Rehnquist, later Chief Justice said, it's okay to double sell because it's just for a short time. And in 1981, in an opinion written by Lewis Powell for a five person majority, he said, it's okay to double sell for prison because they're really bad people. Mm. Without both of those decisions, the state and government, this is the early eighties before the prison population right. zoomed to its one point uh, four or five million plus another more than half million in jails. If there had been a price for governments to pay as in decent, safe, non-congregant, non-double-celled housing, you couldn't have gotten where we are now. So just as law was an engine for this uh, licensing of hyperdensity, law needs to be an engine for cutting, for refusing to let people stay in harm's way. And the people, by the way, who are in harm's way are staff and communities, as well as the people who are incarcerated, because um, the great doctor in Connecticut, Dr. Jamie Meyer, who's been involved in many of these lawsuits as an expert witness, her, her what she taught me was prison health is public health. And the answer is when everybody's sick, the, the, the biggest prison's not sealed because staff come in and out. The people inside may be isolated, but the staff, contract workers, physicians come in and out. And so this is a community-wide risk and the community has to lower the risk. And the only way to lower the risk is to de-densify. It may have been, it may have been a New Yorker article um, that um, it was the, the Arkansas system got thrown out in like, like 1970, I think. Well, so the, uh, and, and 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 it was it was deemed cruel and unusual punishment, if I read that correctly, right? So Arkansas, the, I'm writing a book called Impermissible Punishments, which includes whipping in Arkansas as well as prisons now. And Arkansas used to whip its prisoners. And three federal judges in 1965 and 67 said, "You can do it as long as you provide some procedural protection." In 1968, when Harry Blackman was still on the Court of Appeals before he went to the US Supreme Court, he wrote the opinion saying you, corporal punishment's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And in 1970, for the first time in American history, a federal judge sitting in Arkansas said the entire system was unconstitutional as a dark and evil place and issued a series of reforms. By the way, it was race segregated too, just to be clear that we're talking, when we're talking prisons, we're always talking race, we're always talking gender, class. White and black prisoners were whipped and it was horrible for everybody and blacks were disproportionately whipped and disproportionately uh, incarcerated. So at then as now, but the, the saying it's horrible and then there started to be engines of reform, but the cases to which I just adverted earlier started closing the lid 
on the kinds of reforms. We, the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause could then and could now be read to say, you can't do this to people. The key about COVID, which it just needs to distinguish, is some cases say the conditions are no good, fix the conditions. And that assumes that, it's, that the people are lawfully there. What COVID does is it takes a lawful conviction and in my view, turns it into an unlawful con uh, detention because mm -hmm. no one has the power to sentence these people to risk of disease. Indeed, the cruel and unusual punishment clause says you can't do that. So what we should understand is that COVID claims actually say you can't keep the person there. There are provisions in the law, they're including provisional remedies, something called enlargement or bail, where people could be temporarily out as well as permanently out. But the goal is you've got to lower the density if you're going to make it even plausibly safe for the people who are there. Professor, I But I'm wondering if you could talk, speak a little bit to the types of um, the COVID infection rates that we are actually seeing at detention facilities, because I feel like I've seen numbers. Of, so I've seen that 90% um, of the hotspots in our country are in detention facilities. Um, and, you know, that also there have been about over a thousand deaths um, in facilities across the U.S. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about like, what is the scale of the of what we're looking at? So um, we should be we need to underscore detention means ICE facilities, as well as jails, as well as prisons. And there's military, but we're just fo we're focused on those forms of detention. And when we look at those detention, the New York Times ran a, a review of the clusters. And in early July, it was 80 percent prisons and jails and then followed 15 percent making meat packing. And then there was the aircraft carrier. And so there was a list. And the important thing is to say it's around the country and it's federal and state. It's not like there's some safe place at the and and. Um, the risk and a shout outs um, after COVID came into being and your guests are, your other guests is, and a, are examples of a remarkable community that um, took all their time and energy to try to lower the risk and keep fewer people in harm's way. And that meant lawyers and non-lawyers around the United States were working to lower the density. Research from a group um, that in, based at UCLA, including a new law student at Yale named Kaylin Parrish, and Brent, as well as uh, uh, professors uh, Brendan Soloner and Julie Ward and others, did uh, research and found that prisoners were uh, multiple times, five, three percent, three times more likely to die and five times more likely to get the disease. And it's, it's not, um, they did the documentation, but it's not, it doesn't, it isn't hard to realize that if you stick people together, given that we're told to stay apart, of course this has to happen. And it's also important, and there's a wonderful group called The Men run by Dr. Bree Williams out of University of California, San Francisco, who's always trying to help people see she does healthcare. Medical quarantine is not solitary confinement. Now, one of the things the Lyman Center does is it looks at uh, along with working with the leaders of correctional organizations around the United States to document the numbers of people who are in solitary confinement. And as of last summer, there were our best guesses between 55 and 62,000 people in the United States, or roughly four to, depending on the facility, three to 10% of its population was in solitary confinement. That is not quarantine. And there is a way to keep distance that is not 
eating all your meals in the same place and total isolation, which is a, a very disabling as has been documented by many. So I can send your listeners to websites, AMEND, UCLA, COVID Project, many, many, Lyman Center, many places both documenting and then trying to make change through policy, legislation. Let's not let governors, let's not think it's only about courts. Talk about yeah. governors who could let people out, talk about the executive branch and talk about legislatures. We have one here, legislators, who could then say, what are the pieces of legislation that could respond to this? And I have to say on everybody's watch, there hasn't been the willingness to let go of the thing called prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you started talking about solitary confinement, right? Um, that is not the same as medical quarantine. There are, um, there are studies that have been done that show, however, that in response to COVID rising in detention facilities and prisons, that that has actually been the tool used right. um, to separate people, right? So can you explain like what is wrong with that practice, number one, and why is it ineffective? Well, for people who've walked into some solitary cells, as many of, I'm sure many people who are on your program and many people have been detained in them, um, they are five by four by six, five by seven, a metal bunk uh, sink, uh, wet cell with an open toilet, frosted glass, if there's light at all, you can be, sometimes it's 24 seven lights on, it is nothing like when people were talking about what it felt like for themselves to be solitary or isolated as we all need to be and have been and probably will again. Those are not, there's there's no autonomy choice. You can put someone at great distance and have, uh, first of all, there are actually people do pods of quarantine as we see where people mm -hmm. are isolated, which are not by themselves, but they've all been exposed. Second of all, you've got to figure out how staffing can come in and out. So you need to have the equipment. And third of all, you don't need to, have people not have phones and abilities and access and reading and materials and access to programs through Zoom and the others, other ways that people are involved. A totally different situation. Now, going back to the merits, there shouldn't be solitary confinement either. And nobody should be censor orally deprived, nor with lights on 24 seven. That's a good introducing our next um, Justine Vanderloon wrote a piece in uh, uh, maybe not the last issue, the one before that of the New York Review of Books, and I happened to read it, and I found it to be so compelling. I shared it with with Abby and with our producer Olivia, and uh, we we just that was really the impetus for this show, and then we came upon the other uh, great guests that we have. But Justine, that piece was uh, sobering, shocking moving in in so many ways as i recall you you had correspondence with uh, a large number of uh, women at facilities around the country i think in 19 states maybe 20 something different facilities um there over a two-year period there were i think you said something like 600 emails and uh um various phone calls and and, and other ways of uh, communicating um, it, it was absolutely amazing to me because, uh, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but, but I thought, I, I thought maybe I knew a little more than I knew. And, and just the, the stunning, uh, facts of, uh, 80% of women inmates being mothers 
And just what COVID, for example, does to that in terms of cutting off communication and contact and, and so forth. Um, is there a silver lining here that you've seen from the last six or seven months of this pandemic? Is it, uh, is it <laughs> like us? Is it, is it, is it getting these issues on the radar screen of, of, of people who are trying to prompt discussions like we are? Is that one of the things? Yeah. I mean, that, well, first of all, thank you for, for reading it. And, and I'm glad that it, um, it sort of it resonated. Um, silver lining. It's hard to talk about a silver lining with subjects like this, where, you know, it's, it's just so sad and there's so much darkness to it. Um, but I do think that that's correct. I did find I, I, I have been working on the subject of women in prison for nearly two years. Um, and certainly a big part of what interested me to begin with and what continues to be uh, the focus of my work is gender-based criminalization. So the specific ways in which women are criminalized and, and the reasons women are incarcerated, which are, are quite distinct from why men are criminalized and incarcerated. Um, and so I have been very interested in that and have been reporting on that. At the beginning of my reporting, and maybe it was my own, the quality of my work but I, I'm, I'm more, I'm not so convinced of that. It's a, it's a hard topic to get people to care about. It's like the most marginalized of the most marginalized of the most marginalized population. And I came up maybe for the first year against enormous, like just so many more silences, more rejections and kind of nobody caring in me saying, this is really important, listen to this story um, than I've ever had before in my life. And when COVID came around, so I'm not sure, I'm, I, can't, I can only say this, this is what happened. I can't make a, you know, a total yeah. link. Um, immediately published three large pieces with no trouble with three different publications within the span of a few months um, about incarcerated women about COVID. So there, there was something to the pandemic that focused people in on maybe populations that they previously disregarded or weren't interested in. And of course, editors are part of the bigger population. So they too were like, huh. Um, and we're, and I just found a, a lot more openness to talking about these, these issues. Maybe it's a silver lining. I hope. <laughs> Can what? you I'm sorry. No, no. So Justine, wondering if you could share like one or two stories that really demonstrate how incarcerated women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Um, you know, for those who haven't had the chance to read this um, or want to read this, um, you know, just explain some of that for us. So I think, um, Dr. Resnick, is that the correct pronunciation? I hope I'm saying that right. I mean, she, she's correct to say, are they disproportionately impacted as compared to incarcerated men? Maybe not. They're, that's They are my focus. I think they're differently impacted. Um, certainly there are overlaps. I, I think, for example, in, you know, w women have perhaps different needs, perhaps, um, you know, uh, different relationships. I think 
in terms of them being mothers, that is a big part of the struggles of women who incarcerate who are incarcerated. And for example, um, Nicole Adamando is a woman in New York that I have reported on at length. I wrote a long, a lengthy article about her, but um, she's in Bedford Hills, and you know she really she's in prison for defending herself against um, an abusive partner, uh, and she's gotten twenty years to life. For that, um, you, you know, she she's a mother of two young children, and uh, she is relatively lucky in the sense that she has a very supportive sister who takes care of those kids, and those kids were seeing her every week, and that was sort of what kept that whole family going. And she got to Bedford Hills; she was new; she had been there since February the children were able to come every week and that prison did allow that did have a sort of a nursery and an area where they could be and they could be fit for hours and that sustained them and then after the trauma of going to prison after the trauma of that isolation being ripped out from her community being ripped away from her children she then their visitation was completely stopped and she could not physically touch her children um and i'm not sure they had any kind of video calls or anything like that for months. So for both her and the children, that's particularly devastating. Not to say that there can't be a father in that situation, but it is a, a situation much more likely um, to happen to women. And I know there were, I was told there were women in certain prisons who say their children lived far away and they their families had plans to come see them. And, you know, they were gonna travel. And then vegetation was just cut off. And often these are families with not very much money. And, you know, these are things people save up for. And it just destroys these kids as well as these mothers. So that's, I mean, that's one story. There are so many. There was one, um, Shwanika Patterson, who was in the story. She's a woman yeah. also in New York, just coincidentally, who did get COVID. And she did, um, she had, she had asthma as a pre-existing condition. And I remember it wasn't in the story, but I remember speaking to her mother, her mother, she and her mother talk every day. They spend, they do not have the money to do it, but they have, they're forced because of these corporations that run these phone, the, the phones in prisons to spend, you know, $6 a day just talking, which is a lot if you do it every day, but it sustains again, the person in prison and her mother. And the mother had not been to see her in, I think it was six or seven years because she could, she didn't have a vehicle and she couldn't afford to get there. Hmm. She had just after seven years, bought a car and was planning to go see her daughter who she talked to every day, uh, you know, for seven years. And then COVID happened and visitation was stopped. And again, she couldn't see her child. And then her child got sick. Yeah. So have you, have you come upon uh, the core of any reform movement with regard to women in prison? And, 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 and if so, I mean, I understand there are here and there, some patches of, uh, of of sort of hopeful institutions where some good things are going on uh, that aren't going on around most of most of the rest of the country. But uh, if Joe Biden or Jill Biden calls you on November fourth and says, "What do we do now about this 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 crisis with with female inmates?" What do you say? 
So the, the I'll, I'll just say first that the movements that I find most inspiring that make most sense to me tend to be abolitionist movements, not reform movements. Mm. That said, I appreciate the need for reform, you know, for a person who's in solitary confinement, they still need the reform. I mean, abolition is not gonna just happen. Um, I think in particular with women, what I see is in my research that so many women are in prison because um, they have been trying to survive physical or sexual violence. Uh, I think that you know men are in prison for many reasons as well, but the, but specifically this is something they're either they're trying to survive it as well. There are a lot of people, a lot of people in women's prisons who have abu like extreme abuse backgrounds, who have been uh, physically tortured, who have been sexual, you know, have had great sexual violence done to them. Well, San Sandra Brown was was one in your story. Yes. Who said, uh, who said, you know, the tragedies we've suffered since we were little girls and young women with acts of violence against us. And then suddenly I, 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 re I react, I respond and I'm a criminal. Exactly. And there's no and, and we don't have our laws. First of all, I don't think prosecutors are uh, informed um, about when to charge and when to not, what is justice. I don't think defense attorneys, uh, largely just regular defense attorneys in your small town, have any idea about what so many of the women are going through. You know, m they don't put forth mitigating factors. The laws are not designed, you know, laws are designed, self-defense laws are really designed for two similar sized men outside a bar who just met and one has a gun. And they, you know, I mean, or somebody breaking into your home, but what about, you know, uh, stand your ground. Well, what if it's both of your ground? Um, so I think, you know, to have the, the actual concerns of women written into law, to have some some rules that prosecutors perhaps may either have to follow or uh, some education for them, you know, you don't always have to charge somebody with everything and go for the harshest thing, um, the harshest penalty. That That's a consideration. Um, but again, when I look at the systems in terms of how can reform be done, I see the necessity of it. And I have people I know who are who call themselves radical pragmatists who say we, we just need to, people are respect. Um, but when I really look at it, it, look, it looks to me like so many social systems are missing on the way there that by the end, people are just failed, like Sandra Brown, who's a brilliant woman and, and she's getting out soon um, in Chicago. So many people are just failed all their lives by every system that should have been there to help them. And then that very system that failed them swiftly turns around, blames them for everything and then punishes them as harshly as possible. And in doing so, um, what's interesting to me because it's kind of a parallel to how abusers act and many of these people's abusers acted uh they erase the story they erase the narrative surrounding that person and that person is reduced to the act with no context um and then that's the data that we have this person killed they did not it was not self-defense because the state decided it was not self-defense uh there's no mitigating circumstances because the state decided that you were lying about that or didn't care and that's that you're gone
So there are so many, so many things that could be done ahead of time. So many programs that, that could save people, could save the lives that were taken of the victims, uh, you know, that could save families, that could save communities. So to me, I really think that's where the investment really should should go toward making those new structures. Um, yeah, I want to bring in our um, third guest, who is the director of um, civil litigation at the Promise of Justice Initiative. Um, this is an organization focused on criminal justice reform in Louisiana. Please welcome me. Please join me in welcoming Nishi Kumar to the stage. Nishi, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been really uh, amazing already to hear from your two guests. Well, it's great to have you, you know, and you're on the ground and, uh, uh, you know, a hands-on um, uh, practitioner, I guess we could call you, right? Um, in, in the real world. So um, we, we're trying to get our, our arms around uh, what happens, is there momentum do you see momentum out there for change? And is that momentum partly driven by this crisis, you know, unparalleled health crisis that we find ourselves in? Um, I, I think, yes. Uh, I wanna be really optimistic about it, despite, you know, some, some stalls in the momentum. I think that the public sentiment is there. And I think that one thing that we've seen and is so heartening since the beginning of COVID is that the medical community is coming out for us. The doctors on the ground are willing to testify to do site visits in our jails and prisons and to talk about how people cannot stay safe in these congregate settings. Um, our clients at the women's prisons and at the men's prisons sleep in dorms of 86 people. One of them has COVID, they all get COVID. There's no way to keep you safe. The only thing to do is to reduce the numbers across the board. Um, and even then, you know, social distancing in a prison facility is always going to be difficult because of the way the prisons operate. Um, so for example, most of my work is done out of Angola State Penitentiary, which is a former plantation, now a working prison. Um, most of, there are some women who are incarcerated there, um, but most of them are men. And most, I think 92% of them are serving life or effective life sentences um, so what, somewhere up there. So what's a day like for you in that setting? Uh, so if you're living in one of these kind of working prisons, um, you're running the show. You know, you're the ones taking care of the older prisoners. You're the ones cooking the meals. You're the ones cleaning the dorms. You provide all of the labor. You work in the fields. You work in the plant processing factories. You know, it is a it's basically the same as it was when it was a plantation. It's just being fueled now by prison labor rather than slave labor. Um, and the correctional officer's jobs are really to make sure that you toe that line. So we had clients pretty early on, um, and not just at Angola, but at other facilities, who if they didn't go out and work, they were punished. Hmm. And so to a lot of, you know, Dr. Rezek's points, it's, it's, it's punishment. People are being forced to expose themselves to COVID uh, even outside of just the normal prison settings, and they are being punished on the back end if they don't. So we did see a lot of um, forced exposure leading to these huge spikes in COVID numbers. And then on the back end, when people are getting sick, they're not being treated like patients. And this is something that we have seen. I do, I do a lot of um, litigation around just medical care in general in jails and prisons. And this is something that you see before COVID, I'm sure we'll see after COVID, 
is that when people who are incarcerated get sick or when they need treatment, they're still treated like prisoners. They're not treated like patients. Um, and that's by prison administrators. Sometimes that's by the doctors and nurses. Um, it's, it's, you know, I have friends and people that I've worked with for a really long time. And they have explained to me that when you see someone coming into your hospital and they're shackled and they're in an orange jumpsuit, it's hard to think of them as just the same patient and not to think of them as somebody who's violent. And so across the board, people in prisons and jails get subpar medical treatment. And our clients, um, when they're testing positive for COVID, are receiving that same uh, inhumane treatment. Uh, a lot of them are old. A lot of them have comorbidities. We have, especially in Louisiana, an aging prison population um, due to some really harsh sentencing laws that we're working on reforming. But, you know, people are serving those life sentences for minor crimes. Um, we recently, you know, we're working on getting more and more people released on those minor crimes. Um, but in the meantime, those people are in prison and they're being exposed to COVID. Uh, I think a story that goes untold, just to kind of follow up on your point, is what the staff people um, who staff these prisons, that's their job, are experiencing on a daily basis. Um, the rates, I pulled this up right before this call, the, the likelihood of getting COVID if you are a staff member at one of the prisoner jail facilities is 247% greater than if you are a member of the community. And those staff members live in the community. So they're taking it home to their families and they're scared. Uh, and I think that, you know, even people who maybe aren't 100% on board with depopulating prisons or criminal legal system reform generally, those are your neighbors. You know, those are the people that you're seeing at the grocery store. They're also being exposed and it's gonna keep, um, you're never gonna be able to eliminate COVID from jails and prisons until you have a widely available vaccine. And even then the staff members are coming in and out and there's gonna be a constant risk of exposure. So long story short is that uh, the only thing that we really can do is let people go home. Hmm. So, um I, I believe we've touched upon this a little bit. Um, so when we talk about depopulating, there are often folks who will say, well, what about the safety of the community? And I'm wondering what your response is to that, right? Um, how do we release people? Well, one, should that be a presumption, right? And then how do we release people um, and make sure they're safe, make sure that the community is safe as well? Yeah, I think we get that answer a lot, especially because, um, people are elected and they feel like if they don't take public safety into concern, it's gonna come back uh, in the elections and hurt them. Um, I think that you have to think about the safety in the prisons as the foremost concern. So, you know, go off the presumption that people in jails and prisons are unsafe right now. They are being asked to put their lives at risk just by being, just by being there. They can't social distance, they can't keep themselves safe. Um, we had a woman reach out to my office this week saying, you know, I don't need anything from you all, but just wanted to let you know that in these facilities, they're not separating the sick people from the well people. We don't even have hand sanitizer or soap to wash our hands. Um, I think operate from that presumption that prisons are an unsafe place to be generally, but especially during a pandemic. And every single person should be considered for release and considered, is there an alternative to keeping them here that would keep them safer? And then at the very end of that process, maybe there's a type of, um, I don't, I, we don't support risk assessments because they often don't take into account all of the things that 
have already been discussed on this call, but is there some reason that this specific person needs to be confined? If so, it's probably a mental health issue, and then that person belongs in a different type of facility. Right. Um, and I think that is that is what I hope um, we eventually come to as a country, that that's the analysis that's taken by sentencing judges at the very beginning of the process. Yeah, you know, in preparing for this uh, this program and, and uh, you know, we, we try to, we do a different topic every show and we try to get as smart as we can, but um, it just it just kept hitting me over and over again as I read um, things that you know you've helped to produce and others on this program. Um, the, the the whole thing about nonviolent offenders uh, being so narrowly defined. So you could take you mentioned older older inmates. You could you could probably I don't know this, but I, I would imagine just from from reading these materials. You could probably take a pretty significant percentage of older inmates who who could not be deemed any threat or risk to the society, and get them toward living regular lives outside. Right? I mean, a hundred percent, yes. And I think one thing to remember is a lot of those older people—not all, but most of them—they went to prison really young. And they were sentenced to really long sentences under some sometimes old statutory guidelines, sometimes right. judges who didn't take into account all of the factors that we've talked about. But they're now in their 50s and 60s, and they're completely different people. Um, what you do when you're 18 is not who you are when you are 50 years old. Um, and you are at risk of dying younger because you are in the prison system. So they're literally robbing you of not only the years of your life you've already spent there, but your future years instead of taking into consideration all the changes that have happened. Prison is also not supposed to just be about punishment. It's supposed to be about rehabilitation. So if those people have not gained skills, you know, gone through programming and classes to become productive um, and safe members of society, that's the prison's fault. That is one of the purposes of the carceral system is supposed to be rehabilitation. And I think that is what has fallen away. Mm -hmm. from prisons across America is we forgot about rehabilitation. We forgot that there's supposed to be programming. There's supposed to be opportunities. There's supposed to be, um, you know, a sense of you are still a person and we're looking to return you to society and more of, you know, this is actually just a death sentence under another name. And I just wanted to point out, I know this isn't part of your normal programming, but as to November 4th, um, my office does a lot of death penalty work. And I just want to remind your viewers that this administration has chosen not only to effectively kill people through COVID, um, but they have chosen to also affirmatively kill people through use of the federal death penalty. Um, yes. And that's seven people that this administration has chosen to execute. So if you want to know how they feel about keeping people safe, I think you should take that as kind of the, the jumping off point. That would be the right, the right to life party, right? <sighs> Right, right to life in some ways, <laughs> like so, you know, yeah. Yeah. executioners in other ways. Uh, Anisha, that's a great point. Um, we actually have an audience question about that, right? After November 4th, um, when we hopefully do have this new federal government in power, like what role should they play, right? In criminal justice reform or abolishing prisons, um, you know, and have those conversations started. Um, I know you work primarily at the state level, but I know you're also looking at the federal level as well. Well, I think COVID um, 
showed me some in some ways how important it is to have these federal guidelines and regulations out there. Um, they really are the touch point for a lot of things. So for example, the CDC guidance on um, jails and prisons did not go as far as they needed to when they were talking about congregate settings. Um, they came out and they didn't say anything about universal testing. You know, so it's hard for judges around the country to order universal testing when that's not what the federal regulations are saying. Um, you can't keep people safe in congregate care settings if you're not testing them regularly. You just don't know who has it and who doesn't. Um, so I think, you know, there there is a, a role that the federal government plays in kind of guiding the states as to how their prisons and jails should be operating. And that might be one of the silver linings of, um, of COVID is to be able to do that. Um, I think that just to, you know, respond to that question as well is that governors have a lot of power, which has already been said, and state legislators have a lot of power and they do listen to their federal government in some ways, especially in states um, that are not necessarily in the deep south. You know, they respond to things that are coming from the federal level and they respond to what's happening in the federal prison system and in the ICE detention system. We, I think we still have uh, Professor Resnick. Uh, sure. I, I, something tells me you might want to respond to. Well, I um, want to, comment. absolutely. First, I want to echo um, the comment about the marginalization of women and the sense in which they are differently seen. Um, many decades ago, I testified at a hearing in Congress at the House, was called the forgotten woman offender. And so then, delighted to know in 20. 19 under the leadership of Catherine Lehman at the US Civil Rights Commission, that there were hearings that we test, a bunch of us, many of us testified, and there's an enormous 350 page report on incarcerated detained women. I, what I wanna put at the center is the impacted women who were the movers and shakers in this. And you asked earlier about whether there was a, a national movement. There is, I was at a conference on uh, uh, women, it was called, uh, justice involved women in the criminal system or whatever, and it included women who work in as corrections facilities, as the staff and as the CEOs, as well as the people who are incarcerated. It was really a remarkable and moving gathering, but also coming back again so that in terms of the national movements that are trying and so grateful that the New Yorker piece was such a New York Review uh, piece was so helpful in bringing into focus that there are a lot of grassroots as well as national efforts trying to bring the points about women as differently treated in the system to the fore and then to think about on examples of who you mentioned uh, didn't need to be incarcerated um, on all the profiles and risk member risk uh, uh, metrics which are flawed as Nishi said Nonetheless, all the women come out not needing this. So actually in the Danbury, in the FCI Danbury COVID litigation in which I was involved, the quote camp for women, which started at 150 plus people is now, women is now down to 50 under this uh, paying attention. So that is one piece is completely agreeing about the need to bring into focus segments of the population and how households as well as the people who are involved. On the on the Angola front, having visited it, it was quite stunning to have the quote tour guide tell me about the people who are called numbers versus lifers. So most of the people who are there are called lifers, 
And the numbers mean you have a fixed term as compared to being there forever. And there's an enormous graveyard with crosses and crosses and crosses. I asked what about people's other religions? But the point is it's a dead end place that is in vivid need of transformation. And it's a four hour or so drive from New Orleans. So in terms of isolation, it's multiplied in coming back to the women's facilities. In so many systems, women are in a single facility that is hyper isolated. Uh, Aliceville, Alabama is where a ton of federally uh, incarcerated women are. Aliceville is far from everywhere. It's not a good place if you're in Alabama, let alone if you're further away. So in terms of the kinds of reforms, if you want to be forward looking, one is that this should teach us that before you put anyone in detention, if you have to put anyone in detention or think you do, you should take health as a factor. If you go through all those risk assessments, very yeah. rare is health or households or families or children's needs or giving care to elder parents or anybody's needs in the list of factors to be taken into consideration. The If you're gonna really end the mass in, massive numbers of people who are incarcerated, you can't just look at people who haven't been convicted of crimes that engage with other human beings, some of which are called violent. Remember that under the rubric of violent, it's me lunging at you whether I touch you or not. And so you have to look across the board at what it is you need. And one is we invented the thing called prison. The people who told us it was disgusting and impermissible as a legal matter were the prisoners who in the 60s, when judges said, hands off, it's up to this executive state or federal, the prisoners kept saying, no, 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 we're human beings and the constitution speaks to us. And it's they who should get pride of place at the front end of all of this and persuaded lawyers and judges and legislators to say, yes, you're rights bearers as well as you're everything else. But then when you're looking at how you're gonna make change, you've gotta say the thing we invented is unacceptable. And even if there needs to be detention for safety in some measure, it can't look like it does now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Justine, you wanna chime in? Um, I, I did want to chime in on the on the nonviolent on the idea of sort of the violent versus nonviolent offender um, and kind of I think that that that, that to me is something that I've always been you know I've been struck by doing this um, because of course there's the political savvy of not letting out the so-called violent offender um, then there's the reality of of you know, we just know that people really just age out of crime. I think that might be one of the number one predictors of why people who may have done something violent just are not, you know, somebody who's 85 is just not going to be a danger to uh, society. Um, in particular, women, of course, the presumption of them being violent, I think, is so often incorrect because we, we know that, you know, there's a dearth of data, which I'm working on, on women. But... Um, but we know that those are mostly interpersonal violence that happens. It's not like women are very rarely having a, an art, you know, are just on a alone doing a, you know, doing a violent act. So it's it's almost a false there um, that they're a danger to begin with. They might have just been in a bad situation. Um, not all of them, but it just it made me think of. Um, it, especially talking about older people, all the people that I that I spoke with, or people who died during the this reporting, and you had you know, this woman who died in Michigan, for example, um, wheelchair bound, uh, seventy something. 
she was a survivor of enormous domestic violence. She had internal injuries that she still had from the violence she had been subjected to by the man she was convicted of killing. And she had had pregnancy a, year, a couple years earlier. She had dementia um, and she was not given clemency. I have a friend, a man in in uh, in Washington State named Arthur Longworth. He's a he's a um, sort of a colleague as well. He's a writer. He was in the foster care system, horribly abused his whole life, aged out at 19 and killed somebody, which is a horrible thing. Um, he's now 54, 55. He has done so much. And one thing that struck me, you know, he's been denied parole. I believe he's going up once again. One thing that I that what he said in terms of um, what Nishi was saying about, um, you know, rehabilitation, he said the one thing about all this time that I've served, and this is what Joe Vanderford, the, the trans man in Minnesota that I wrote about said as well, is like, he said, I've never that all of this punishment has ever given me any chance to make anything I did right. I've never been able to do anything to make it right. Um, so just in terms of, I guess, the purpose of such immense punishment, the idea, the, the assumption that people are, that certain people are violent or in danger, all those things, I guess I just, I really question all of those narratives because to me, they have not proved to, to be true. And then we take them as a given, obviously not this group, um, but uh, the idea of allowing somebody to come out and actually contribute to society when they've proved that they're both not violent and have rehabilitated themselves in spite of a system not rehabilitating them. Um, I think that that's kind of a conversation that could be more widely had, but it's a little nuanced. Mishi, um, any last thoughts that you wanted to add, um, whether it's related to what the go federal government should be doing or the kinds of community programs that we should be funneling resources into rather than funneling resources into um, prisons, um, anything else? Yeah, I, I just wanted to speak to something I heard earlier about the, um, the difference in impact between men who are incarcerated and women who are incarcerated. I think one thing um, that means necessarily that women are more impacted is that they're often overlooked. Um, in a system that is predominantly male, prisons are designed for men. That's who they were designed to hold and that's who they were designed to serve. That specific programming, specific needs of women have always kind of gone unaddressed. Um, I think the point that women are mothers who need the opportunity to mother their children is often not um, is not taken into account by the system at all. And what that leads to is intergenerational issues that we as society are responsible for because we took children and their mothers and we separated them. And then we expected, you know, different generations not to experience the same levels of harm. Um, I'm working on a suit right now that's actually about the kids who are in prison during COVID and hearing the pain of their mothers because they haven't hugged their child, you know, uh, the mother of a 12 year old who hasn't hugged her child since March. Like that is the pain that the women who are incarcerated are similarly feeling because there's been no family visitation. Um, and nobody is thinking about that and thinking about the trauma that that creates throughout families and the kind of healing that's gonna be needed after the pandemic. Um, so I do think that, you know, federally and on a state basis, there's gonna be a, a need to kind of um, find the resources and find the ability to heal a lot of what is maybe not a medical um, condition coming out of COVID, but is actually just, you know, it's gonna be a struggle. There's gonna be a lot of trauma 
Um, and I'm not sure if that's responsive to your original question. I apologize, but that was something that I wanted to make sure that I shared. Can I just also flag that women are about seven to 10% of a prison population across the country, depending on the state or the jurisdiction, higher in some jail systems. And just to underscore the pathetic failures of, of provisioning and care, federal statutes say you're supposed to give sanitary products because women couldn't get them. And when I was visiting a women's facility, calling it a facility for women's, when I was visiting a, a place that women are detained in, in uh, one state, they proudly took me to a cabinet and opened it where women could freely pick up sanitary napkins. And as much as I was glad to see it, of course, I my heart dropped because it was like, oh my God, it took an incredible amount of energy to give people the equivalent of toilet paper which also, by the way, is a problem in jails and prisons. To be clear that we're talking about things that are the, the ordinariness of people's daily movements that are mostly we do on automatic, many people do, not all poor people, not all people, but the ability to have, pro I mean, we don't provide diapers for people who can't afford the $1,100 a year for them either. So this lack of care and the weird part, which has already been discussed, is actually prisons and jails are very expensive. So that in fact, you're giving, it's a $1.4 million for post-conviction housing program. And a, it's the wrong way to provide housing. And if the governments are going to provide these stunning amounts from the pathetic systems that have 15 or 20 or $25,000 per person to some systems that spend 40 or $45,000 per person, think about how you could use that money in so much more generatively than the way we're using it now. Well, thank you all for joining us today um, and talking about reimagining what um, criminal justice reform looks like. Um, we appreciate everyone in our audience for joining us as well. Um, Toby, any last final thoughts before we wrap up? I, I, I think this has been one of the best shows that we've that we've done. One of the best discussions was just wonderful guests. And, and you know, Abby, you think about it um, and you and I do a lot of advocacy work in different, uh, you know, different kinds of places for different kinds of people. But there's just not a lobby out there for these souls who are trapped in this in this system very often, uh, you know, uh, with circumstances that were beyond their control. So I, I think one one maybe bright possibility out there is if you look at the criminal justice reform that even some key Republicans supported in the past year, uh, which we thought would never happen, maybe there's the basis for a bipartisan coalition around some, you know, decency here in terms of uh, uh, treatment humanitarian treatment of people. Let's hope so. So, well, uh, we, we're really grateful for everybody tuning in and everyone uh, who joined the live stream and those of you who will watch this uh, afterwards on one of your favorite, uh, in one of your favorite places. So thanks. Thanks everyone.